Welcome to Storytime with Blair. This week we're rocking out with some Batson framework and the law and all those cool things. You hear me, but you don't listen. You think it's easy being put in this position. I freak speech, but Okay, welcome back everyone. Uh, this week we have a reading involving legal psychology, so all of you considering a future in law and all those kinds of things. Uh, this week is for you. And it's also just, I think, of interest this week, especially around anyone just who's interested in uh, making the right decisions uh, about diversity and, and all kinds of other things. Uh, key topics from this week involve just the general idea of voir dire uh, questioning, uh, the idea of explicit and implicit biases uh, when we're selecting juries, uh, something called the Batson framework, and then talking about different strategies that people have tried to use to improve how we select juries. So it's kind of an interesting week. It, it, it ties into a very specific area of law, but um, I think this is a really cool topic. So, so I'll get going. So you know, the, the chapter begins by claiming the essence of a trial by jury, as enshrined in the Sixth and Seventh Amendments, is the selection of fair and impartial jurors and various jury selection processes exist to achieve that goal. The questioning of prospective jurors, termed voir dire, has a rich and turbulent history as, as attorneys, judges, and legislators have attached varying desires and objectives to this first phase of a trial. Although most agree that voir dire has both practical and symbolic importance, it does and has over the years also garnered ambivalence, contentiousness, and derision, uh, largely because people don't really think it works very well. Uh, really, the, the main goal of voir dire questioning is to get people who are impartial. You're asking them, are you going to be biased in this trial? And you're expecting that their answer is honest and that they can actually access, they can actually know whether or not they're going to be biased. Um, it's, it's a tall task, especially for something that often is relatively brief. It, it doesn't last very long, and, um, and so this is a big challenge. And largely, if you look at the goals of Wardir, there's a bunch of different goals, and they can be competing. So if you look at the, the, the sanctioned reasons for why we have it, one is <clears throat> determining whether a prospective juror meets the requirements to serve. So things like age, residency, citizenship, all that stuff. Second, ascertaining whether the juror can participate in the deliberation based solely on the evidence and the law presented during the trial. And then also to provide information that allows attorneys to decide which jurors to challenge and excuse. So that's kind of the the main question, but if you ask attorneys, what they're going to say is that their goal is to weed out and remove any jurors who might be biased against their client. And so that is kind of the really the main focus practically about what it tries to achieve. And so this is pretty common. It's going to look, voir dire questioning looks different from one jurisdiction to another. Um, but I'm sure if you've uh, had a family member, or even if you've been called up to serve uh, time in a jury, um, sometimes people try to use this questioning period to uh, to try to get out of serving on a jury. And sometimes it works, uh, sometimes it does not. Um, 
So, you know, really that's kind of the, the main focus. And, and usually in, it involves some processes where you have judges asking questions of people like, would you be biased? Uh, what's your background? Things like that. Um, have you heard about this trial in the news at this point? Um, but then also you often sometimes have uh, attorneys who get a chance to um, involve challenges uh, towards different people who are involved in the jury. And so all of this recognizes that all prospective jurors come to the jury box with a full complement of experiences and attitudes that might predispose them to think about the evidence in a particular way and that affect their ability to be objective. And so if you look at juries, you have people who have attitudes and beliefs after, you know, developed through years of driving cars, working, using products, being exposed to the media, and all that type of stuff. And so, um, so really, uh, at the same time, no juror can really be completely neutral. Every member in the jury is clearly going to be biased and influenced by their past experiences. So, um, but here's the challenge, is, is recognizing that there's often explicit biases and implicit biases. And these might operate on both the jurors, but also the people doing the selecting. So this is a big distinction that this chapter makes is you can have, you know, it's important to understand there's explicit biases that jurors might have. Um, there's also implicit ones that they might not be aware of. And then similarly, if it's a judge or an attorney making a selection, they also might have biases that are implicit or explicit that influ influence who they tend to pick or challenge as a jury member. So, uh, so that's a big question. So, you know, uh, you know, if you, if you really look at the explicit um, types of biases that people have, I think the main challenge here is that you know, a lot of people are going to hide them. So if you think about this, judges are usually asking people uh, in a big group questions like, would any of you be unable to be fair and impartial toward the defendant because of the media coverage that surrounded this case? Well, if you're in that setting, uh, how likely are you to actually respond and say that you're going to be biased? There's actually a lot of pressure facing the other way. So, so I think that's really the challenge. And so you're relying on the fact that jurors are brave enough to speak up and to share uh, how they would actually respond. So, so I think that's, that's key. But I think most interesting for our class as, is also that there's implicit biases in jury selection. So, you know, uh, if you really look at this, we have implicit biases that endure. They often operate without people's awareness, intent, or control. They're unconscious attitudes that affect our assumptions about other people, and they distort our judgment and behavior. And over the past few decades, it's become apparent that these biases permeate the criminal and civil justice systems, and even those who insist that they harbor no preconceptions, prejudices, or ill will toward others tend to exhibit these subtler forms of bias. And so this really impacts juries. And so we have research showing that these implicit biases are distinct from explicit ones. They're pervasive. They predict lots of different behaviors and actions. Um, studies, for example, using subliminal priming, so little types of tasks where you um, 
you know, uh, try to prompt people to recall certain aspects of their beliefs can uncover this. We also have the implicit association task where people make a bunch of really quick judgments um, based on looking at pairs of words and the strength of association between concepts. So often this is focused on people's implicit biases, particularly towards different categories of people um, uh, and those types of things. So, so usually based on just your response time, you can judge using the IAT, um, uh, a general sense of people's implicit biases towards certain groups or concepts um, and other things. Uh, another really paradigm uh, that's a little bit more focused just in the medical setting is a shoot-no-shoot shoot, no shoot paradigm where participants play video games and they're asked to shoot perpetrators, um, the characters holding guns, not innocent bystanders. But of course, you can switch around who the perpetrators and uh, the bystanders are, whether they're black or white or other characteristics that are visible. So... So these things are really important. Uh, they're really valuable. Implicit biases do have value um, in certain times, but there's also challenges. And so, you know, even when you look at this, and even if you have a juror who says that they're, you know, not biased, um, you can imagine how there's these other influences that they might not even be aware of. And so if our only way to judge, uh, make a judge about people is by asking them, we're going to miss a lot. And kind of an example here is when Boston Marathon bombing suspect, I cannot say his name other than Sarnev, uh, when, on, when trial in early 2015, so it was a little while ago, but this was uh, the individual, um, I believe it was him and his brother, who uh, in, conducted a bombing at uh, the finish line of the Boston Marathon. Uh, his attorneys argued that because the, the bombing had affected so many Bostonians, they should move the trial to a different city. But the judge denied that request and said that, you know, the time-tested method for determining whether a juror can actually set aside his beliefs and apply the presumption of innocence is voir dire. And so Judge O'Toole uh, <laughs> totally committed to this. And, uh, you know, if you look at kind of what they said, let's see here. Um, so if you look at kind of the case, um, Judge O'Toole actually didn't automatically dismiss Boston jurors who presumed already that Sarnav was guilty coming in. Um, stalling, following standard procedures, the judge asked, asked jurors whether they could set aside their opinions and decide the case on the basis of the evidence that they would hear and the instructions he would provide. So, you know, even here he's saying, well, can you put aside your biases and, and you know, judge just based on the evidence? Um, so that's, I think that's really challenging. It, it assumes that people can come in with, uh, with um, an on-off switch they can turn off. And then there's another piece here. So, um, uh, is let's see here so you have rehabilitation as well and so another thing with this with the boston trial was that the the judge actually even also said to uh someone you know would you be able to discipline your mind so that you can make a decision based on the evidence presented at trial rather than ideas you came up with so the idea here is kind of like rehabilitation where you're trying to get people to you know switch around their biases or try to remove them. 
Uh, but there's another practice called prehabilitation um, that's important to note. So, you know, even before a juror can admit to concerns about potential biases, the judge actually signals. This is kind of like a virtue signaling kind of thing, or, uh, but anyways, tries to prompt people to provide a socially desirable response um, by saying things like, you know, this is the portion of the trial that talks about pretrial publicity. Um, about what you've heard and its effect on your ability to keep from forming a preconceived notion and your ability to look at the other side of the story. Keep in mind, though, that it's your duty to presume that the defendant is innocent unless his guilt is proven beyond a reasonable doubt. So what you're saying is, you know, you might be biased, but it is your job to be able to put away your biases. Um, so you're kind of... Uh, uh, so if you look at this, um, a lot of cases do involve these prehabilitation instructions. Um, so it, it's really common, even in, in high-profile cases. And so you know, you're, that's kind of the the piece here. So so I think that's kind of um, kind of an important piece. Uh, and there's other, another kind of cool example of studies uh, that look at um, pretrial publicity. Um, there was you know, a study by current colleagues where they had mock jurors exposed to various types of, of publicity. And then um, it was a case where there was incriminating evidence in the defendant's uh, girlfriend's apartment. And then they questioned these jurors in a mock trial about what effect, if any, the publicity would have on their ability to serve as an impartial jurors. Um, so if you looked at this, and then, then jurors watched a videotaped reenactment of an armed robbery trial that included all the standard elements of a trial, so they, it was as if they were jurors, then they deliberated to a verdict. And uh, so if you look at this, um, that's kind of how the study was designed, and not surprisingly, the mock jurors were affected by exposure to the prejudicial pretrial publicity, uh, convicting more often um, when they were exposed to that. Um, so, if, you know, but that's kind of one piece, though. And then, um, and then, if you looked at the at the study, um, the jurors who asserted that they could try to disregard the publicity and base their judgment solely on the evidence. Um, and these are people then who wouldn't be excused during voir dire, they were just as likely to convict as those who expressed doubts about whether they could set, set the publicity aside. <laughs> oh, I definitely should have turned off my mic for that. I am sorry for that. Uh, but let's just keep rolling with it. Uh, rolling, not rolling with the punches, rolling with the sneezes. Um, let's go with that. Um, so... Uh, these findings raise questions about jurors' awareness of their thoughts and uh, kind of our assumptions about fairness. There's another cool study showing that judges use heuristics to gauge jurors' impartiality. So, you know, Rose and Diamond in 2008 did this little study and they showed judges, uh, real judges, a bunch of vignettes where uh, prospective jurors had a problematic background and they talked about it. And then when they, you know, if you look at this, the, the judges focus on the juror's certainty and they perceive those who gave them a firm response as being able to maintain an open mind 
were more likely to be fair than those who equivocated. So the idea here is that judges often, you know, if you're jurors saying like, yes, I got this, um, they're going to keep that person. And if another juror replies and says something like, yeah, I think I can, I can probably be pretty impartial. Um, the judge is going to drop those people. And that's, you know, that's a really bad judge of, you know, whether someone can be impartial. You know, that could just be, there could be a lot of reasons why someone is enthusiastic or not enthusiastic. Um, one thing we're going to focus on in our class is this Batson framework, which is kind of a, an interesting and conflicting situation where, uh, based on some really problematic trials in the past, um, and then also some, some not so problematic ones, uh, you know, they brought about in a situation where they could strike, um, people from, uh, the jury, uh, simply, um, because they share the same race or ethnicity as the defendant. And so with the Batson framework, uh, in that case, they establish a three-step process to assess whether a peremptory challenge was based on discriminatory intent. So the idea here is Bats, the Batson framework is supposed to remove any of those challenges that were uh, from an attorney that is uh, discriminatory. So the first step is a defendant raises the inference that a prosecutor's challenge was race-based. And then in the next step, uh, the prosecutor is required to provide a race-neutral explanation for the challenge. And then, in step three, the trial judge decides whether the prosecutor's challenge uh, does or does not reflect discrimination against uh, the juror. So, so if you look at this, it's supposed to be like a three-step process to, um, to removing... Uh, you know, minorities or different groups from juries. Uh, but there's lots of challenges to this. And if we were to, um, you know, and, and I encourage you in the, in the reading to track down the Summers and Norton paper um, where they had a robbery and assault case with a black defendant. And basically what they showed is that, you know, even without knowing about the Batson framework, participants in the study, um, were really did not want to admit any influence of jurors race um, on their decision. And they're easily able to, you know, generate plausible and race neutral explanations, even if it was clear that they're excluding people based on their race um, and ethnicity. So let me see here. Ultimately, though, I'll kind of summarize some of the challenges and issues with the Batson framework. So, you know, if you look at this, um, you know, I would probably say, you know, I guess the people who want to eliminate the Batson framework, they argue that preemptory challenges are not constitutionally mandated. They result in wasteful litigation. So it's a waste of time sometimes to try to litigate that someone's discriminatory because they can come up with other reasons. Um, they invite invidious discrimination. Uh, I don't even really know what that means. And they deny citizens the opportunity to serve as jurors. So people who might want to serve as a juror don't get the chance. Um, on the other hand, though, 
if there's people that support the status quo and they contend that peremptory strikes provide an essential safeguard of litigants' right and they allow parties some autonomy to um, put together the most favorable jury possible. And so that's their argument is like, hey, this is someone's right um, and it's their way of you know um, putting together the best jury they can. So I think that's a, an important point. So uh, finally, in this chapter, they talk about ways that we can improve jury selection. Uh, I think the first piece is, you know, we need to find ways for judges to become more knowledgeable about how various biases operate in prospective jurors and how their own actions and inactions promote withholding information and lack of candor. And, and you know, the chapter reflected on the different ways that we can teach or train judges uh, to address this and especially to learn about bias um, through training. Another piece are um, some states in the U.S. They allow attorneys to give many opening statements. They're called voir dire openings. And really the idea here is, you know, someone, if you're going to say whether you're going to be biased against a case, you might not even know what the case is all about at that point in time. So you get these pre these mini opening statements, and then you get the people who might have a little bit more information about the trial, so they might have a better idea about whether they're going to be biased. Next is to broaden voir dire, make it a bigger deal. So right now it's limited to pretty few questions. Uh, you have people wide open, and you ask these questions. Uh, they're coming from a judge. And so, you know, really broadening it out. So uh, asking more questions um, and kind of in different ways. Um, so I think that's piece. That's a, that's a piece. And the last recommendation is just different questioning techniques. So usually it's a question, it's close-ended. Uh, it's a yes or no question, right? Can you be impartial? Um, do you have a bias? Have you heard about this case already? Are you a citizen of Canada? Um, but what if you use uh, more open-ended questions? Like if you have jurors, you might say, you know, how would your ability to judge this case be impacted by the fact that our defendant is black? So in this case, uh, you're getting people to think about the ways that they are influenced. And this might help us uh, better determine jurors and there's also research shared in the chapter that actually shows that getting people to think about that stuff in that way actually led them to be less biased themselves. Uh, it actually reduced the bias injuries. So all of these are kind of cool opportunities. So, you know, you know, maybe, uh, maybe those of you end up being lawyers. This chapter will give you some cool psychological strategies you can use and try. Um, I think otherwise, though, it's just kind of an interesting thing. I, and I honestly hadn't much thought about how psychology um, factors into the courtroom other than being charismatic and all these types of things on the part of lawyers whenever I watch a TV show um, they always seem pretty charismatic but other than that I hadn't really thought about it so you know, hopefully you really enjoyed this today let's keep trucking along we're past the midway point let's go it's a good thing. Listen to the whole hood sing as they go.